I wanted to start off giving you a few moments. We're going to be talking about belonging as witness as we uh, pivot to John chapter 9, as you saw as our one of our lectionary texts. But we'll still be very much in conversation with John chapter 4, which was our lectionary text for last week. And so we just wanted you to take some time to reflect for yourself and perhaps uh, with uh, a neighbor, if you so choose, uh, when you hear the word belonging, what comes to mind? All right. So what are some things for those that would care to share with uh, our community? When you hear the word belonging, what are some words, ideas, uh, feelings that come to mind for you when you hear the word belonging? Being welcomed. Being welcomed. Excellent. All night diners. All night diners. Yeah. Everybody belongs there. Nice. Everybody belongs there. That's beautiful. Uh, other thoughts, reflections? Comfort. Comfort. I heard something back there, but I couldn't. Seen? Yeah. Safe. I think I heard commonality somewhere uh, towards the back. These are wonderful. Any others? Acceptance, yeah. Vibes. Vibes, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just got to have those vibes to feel that belonging, yeah, for sure. There may not be a specific, you know, charted out thing, but you just, you know it when you feel it, when you're experiencing it. Yeah. Any others? Being able to be fully yourself in a space and feeling safe. Thank you, that's, that's really good. Um, when I was uh, starting off in college at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, I think like many people I was struggling uh, to belong. And yeah, if you've not, if you have attended the University of Texas at Austin but you don't have a photograph of yourself on a Longhorn, then you did it wrong. Uh, <laughs> That's the anti-belonging sort of mentality. But, uh, <laughs> but this is a picture of me, I believe, when I was a first-year student uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm outside of the Baptist student ministry, which was a place for me that at the time I was uh, looking to find a sense of community and belonging. And it's, you know, like it's for people who are self-selecting to, you know, hey, my faith, my religion is going to continue to be uh, a paramount part of the way that I connect uh, during college years. So it's already in some sense like a little subgroup of larger university life. And I remember that in that community, it felt like at least during that time that to belong uh, for me, it meant you needed to be sort of like a super Christian. Like if you're already choosing in college to like identify with the Christians, then you really, really, really needed to be a Christian. Uh, and that the way that that manifested itself um, was often around evangelism, around proselytizing, around trying to uh, verbally tell people, share with people uh, the story of Jesus. Uh, and I remember just feeling like, yeah, that's, this is going to be part of like how I achieve and feel this sense of belonging. And in some sense, it's kind of very twisted because it's like I was often going onto campus in a very cold turkey way, not knowing the people, just coming up to them and like, hey, can I ask you a few leading questions? And um, 
can I perhaps, you know, erase, invoke some fear in you so that perhaps I might have the answer to said fear uh, that you have been looking for. And so again, uh, was really going out as sort of an ambassador of anti-belonging in my own quest for belonging. And I was doing all of this uh, from a sincere place of wanting uh, within myself to try to have some congruency with what I thought um, my faith was teaching and also I think just more socially to sort of feel like, yeah, if, if, if we are all here, we being this group of Christians that I was seeking to belong in, saying that we are going to do, you know, be the most intense that we can be as college students about our faith and intensity means doing this kind of evangelism. And I really hoped it would have this huge impact. And I guess in some ways it did, because I think it was significant part of why I had a crisis of faith during college. Um, Because I am still a fairly empathic person. And so while I would be having these incredibly awkward conversations with people on campus when I was trying to incite fear in them about their eternal destiny and other things, Uh, I would be feeling all the things that they're feeling. I would be feeling the sense of like, oh, this is really awkward. Why is this person talking to me? Um, Why are they asking me these leading questions? What can I do to get out of this conversation as quickly as possible? Um, I I would be feeling all that. And I did not like the way that made me feel. I did not like the way I was making other people feel. It did not feel like it was good news. And so... Uh, is part of what began when I came sort of out of that six-month crisis of faith as a university student. I think what I did know clearly at the time was if I was going to continue in some sort of spiritual journey, um, that I needed to change uh, my relationship to what it meant to be an ambassador of God's good news. Um, but I think really, and that's how I would have like framed it in that time, it's like I'm no longer are we doing any of this kind of witnessing, evangelism, proselytizing uh, that feels really manipulative and uh, just not at all in the way that I even saw Jesus in the Gospels uh, living uh, out his example. But uh, I also, I think re- what I was really wanting to do is re-question and interrogate what does it mean to belong Uh, Brene Brown has uh, two things and this shows up in a couple places in her writing and I'm going to look here because iPad's doing what iPad's going to (laughs) do or she shares with us that uh, fitting in is being somewhere you want to be but they don't care one way or another this is kind of through Uh, her research methodology where she's talking to lots of different people and calling and seeing like what commonalities are rising to the surface. If I, if I have to be like you, I fit in. That's sort of the idea of fitting in. And then belonging is being somewhere where you want to be and they want you. If I get to be me, I belong. And so we see there's a very different sense to these two ideas. Uh, and For me, though I was searching for belonging, really what I was doing was settling for trying to fit in to a particular culture, right? And uh, I think we all do this in different ways. Uh, We all probably feel uh, the pressure to fit in when really what we're hungering for, what we really long for, is to belong. 
I'm going to try to switch over to my handy-dandy phone here and see if that helps. So we get to John chapter 9, verse 5. And Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, talking to this man who was born blind, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to be, used to sit and beg? Jesus uh, begins using this language of light. And we talked last week about how in John, it's a very dualistic uh, kind of message. There is light and there is darkness. Uh, there are these clear forms of like what is good and, and what is evil and what does it mean to be belonging and what does it mean to be cast out. And that light in the gospel of John is what it looks like when we are drawing near to God and to others and to community, when we are being honest about ourselves and our situation, when we're finding ourselves illuminated in a way that invites us to connectivity. This is what in John's gospel light symbolizes. And so Jesus begins telling this man who, as we know so far, has never been able to see that Jesus himself is the light of the world, which is an interesting contrast of metaphors and language for a person who is currently uh, not able to see. But he's also trying to invite this man who probably for much of his life, because he was differently abled, had felt like he was on the outside and unable to get in, that there were different ways that his community and the different places that he would have wanted to find belonging probably kept him on the periphery or made assumptions or presumptions about him and about his spirituality. We even see this in the passage. The disciples themselves of Jesus, when they first see him, aren't immediately thinking like, oh, here's a, here's a person we could get to know who we could relate to. Instead, they just ask the question, hey, Jesus, we see that guy over there who sinned, him or his parents? Can you let us know? Let's turn him into a teaching uh, you know, kind of object lesson for us. And in many ways, I'm sure that had been the story of this man who was born blind, his, his story throughout his life, that he had been othered in these kinds of ways. And when Jesus spits and takes this mud, we are reminded of Genesis chapter 2, where God is the sculptor in the garden taking clay and shaping it and forming it and exhaling into the dirt. And we know that when we exhale, sorry for all of you in the sea world sort of section of my own exhaling, uh, that oftentimes spit uh, is, is there with that, that Jesus or that God in the garden is this master sculpture that is taking the clay and the spit and forming humanity. And Jesus is doing this and he sends the person. And it's all very intriguing to me because like Jesus, you could heal in whatever way you would like to heal. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus has chosen this, I think probably very intentionally to remind us of creation, of our connectivity to God and to the earth and to one another and common ancestor that we have in the original couple of Adam and Eve, that we are meant to 
have all of this there. And then Jesus sends him to the pool. That is where they get the water for the festival that they had just been celebrating. And Jesus is also in the gospel of John portrayed as the one who God has sent into the world. And so though Jesus is sending him to this pool, there probably is intended by the gospel writer of John that yes, he's going into the waters that are the pool of scent, but Jesus is the scent one. So if you want to know where his healing comes from, it is ultimately coming from his life being immersed in the connectivity, the belonging, the love of Jesus. This is the source, the true source of this person's healing. Uh, Going back to the woman at the well from last week in chapter 4, verse 39, we hear in her story Uh, After she's had the encounter with Jesus at the well, after he has told her that she is the Messiah that she has been looking for, verse 39, many Samaritans from that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. This woman was able to share with her community, a community that she had also likely felt estranged from, alienated from, We talked about last week, not because of anything, oftentimes people, typically men, who are proclaiming this text, uh, sort of cast aspersions to her morality, to uh, this woman at the well. Why was she married five times? And the simple answer for that is because some man or men were obviously oppressing her in some way. Women in that culture did not have the ability to seek divorce. And so if someone has been divorced five times, it is because someone is choosing to do that to this person. She is the one who is experiencing oppression there. There is no sense, nor does Jesus ever in the text ask her to repent of any sin uh, that is there. That is all something that, unfortunately, mostly men have read into the text and I think says a lot more about us than it does about her uh, in that passage. But nevertheless, she has felt this sense of being estranged and disconnected. And yet when she reconnects to Jesus, she goes and she shares with this group of people that have prior to this not felt probably very much like community or belonging for her. And what she's sharing with them to me is very interesting. He told me everything I have ever done. And I think how we hear these words probably says a lot to us about our image of God, our image of Jesus, because we could think of God, and if God is unsafe, if God is judgmental, if God is condemning, then to be told everything you've ever done immediately makes us feel incredibly unsafe, right? If if that is our image of God, then that means, okay, shields up, you know, maximum defenses, because we don't know what's about to attack us. But if, as I believe we saw last week uh, in John 4, that this woman was finding someone who knew her, who loved her, who accepted her, who offers her belonging, then to find this level of connectivity that maybe you only find the late night diner with someone when you're like, I, I just met this person, but all of a sudden it's like they, they know my whole story and I feel comfortable and free to share with them at length all that has been going on uh, feels like this intimate sort of knowing, right? You hopefully have had uh, relationships moments where you've had that kind of connectivity with someone else. And, and this is part of how 
She was seeing clearly. When we compare the woman at the well with the man who was born blind and will ultimately be cast out of his community, we see that they share many similarities. Both are unnamed. Both are religiously othered and social outsiders. Both come to Jesus during the day, which we talked about again with light in the Gospel of John. It's sort of John's way of saying, hey, these people are trying to draw close to God's love and to what God is doing actively in the world. Uh, Both go after their encounter with Jesus. They are both then moving onward. It's not just like, oh, didn't that make me feel personally good spiritually? But there is a communal nature to what they've experienced that they want to have an impact in their larger community. Um, Both thus are stirring up their communities. They are having said impact. And Jesus stays with the Samaritans uh, in John 4. They ask Jesus to abide with them. And we'll talk about that in a second or in a few minutes. Uh, And Jesus also finds this man who was born blind after the religious leaders cast him out of the community. And so there is this sense that at the end, Jesus is remaining with, abiding with, staying with both of these communities. And so one of the first parallels I see between these two stories is in seeing clearly. This is a journey that takes some time for both of them. For the man who was born blind and for the woman who was at the well, it's not as if their sense of belonging, their sense of connection, their sense of being held and loved, all the wonderful things that you shared earlier um, happen instantaneously. Even in the conversation with Jesus, you sort of see them in both of cases sort of drawing closer, figuring it out. Things are starting to, it's like, oh, Maybe this person actually is safe. Maybe this person isn't trying to uh, presume that I am immoral and they know that I'm going to be tortured for all of eternity. Uh, Maybe instead this person is really curious about who I am and wants to get to know me in a fuller way. In both cases, we see this parallel of how they are shifting. And so then skipping down, what does it look like for them to overcome condemnation. We know that part of the reason our defenses get up is because we are often, especially when it comes to religious circles, used to feeling a sense of condemnation. Many of us have experienced other people using weaponizing scripture in a way that is essentially saying, hey, I wanted to let you know about this text that tells you you're an awful person and you should feel an immense amount of shame for everything you have ever done. And then they're supposed to say, thanks be to God. What is, the, what is, the, what is their appropriate response to that? Um, where in your own life, in your own story, do you feel interrogated, disbelieved, devalued, or dehumanized? Where are the places where your own sense of self has felt unsafe? How does imagined or actual chatter of others' opinions threaten to misshape or sabotage you. Uh, The story in John 9 is incredibly long, and so I'm not spending all the time skipping out a big chunk of it. But in the middle, this person who's experienced healing from Jesus is interrogated by the religious leaders not once, but twice, and is also disbelieved by neighbors, their family, the parents are called uh, up to testify, and their parents don't give a very strong uh, affirmation, to say the least, of, uh, of this person. There's all this chatter of the opinions of others going around about spiritual, about 
this person's spirituality, about their identity. And I think for many of us, as we're growing in our spiritual journey, we get to this place where voices of people that had been a core part of at least previous communities we belong to, and maybe some communities we still find ourselves very much connected to, might also be trying to interrogate, well, what's, what is it about that church you go to? Uh, tell me more about this new belief of yours. There might be these ways that you sense people uh, offering scripture as a way to condemn use. So we see scripture used for condemnation and how we alienate. In John 9, it says, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. That's John 9, verse 16. Our interpretations or other authorities are given inappropriate authority of God right? There's this sense of like, well, I know I have always been taught that this is what this text means. And so that means that this is what God thinks. And so you can think differently if you want to hate God. Is that what you would like? to? <laughs> yes, the Bible is clear. Yeah, I used to teach a I used to teach a course on the Hebrew Bible to undergraduates. And on the very first day, I would say that you can say almost anything in this class except for the Bible is clear. <laughs> it's like, that's going to be the only language that you don't have free speech for in this class. Um, everything else is up for grabs. Uh, and it's really true. Uh, and then uh, how, how we welcome scripture can be used to expand God's story. Condemnation subverts the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. We read in other places in John's gospel, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. Uh, there are a few copies of a Bible that a British missionary society uh, used to uh, proselytize and evangelize uh, African enslaved people. Uh, and in this Bible, they took out all of the texts and verses and passages uh, that they thought would possibly uh, connect with people who had been enslaved around their own liberation, around their own freedom. Uh, and because I can't access my iPad notes, I can't see the specific detailed numbers that I had for that. But it's like the, the text goes from having thousands of chapters to having just a couple of hundred. That it goes from having tens of thousands of verses to having just a few thousand. That the overwhelming majority, at least from the British Missionary Society in the 1800s, from their perspective, that overwhelmingly scripture was on the side of liberation, of freedom, and they're like, we can't have that. So we're gonna only, we're gonna excise everything else out of that uh, that we have. So when people are using scripture to enslave, when they're using it to keep us chained, whether that is literally or mentally or spiritually or emotionally, they're clearly going against the arc of Scripture, the totality of what Scripture testifies to. Another thing we see in this passage is solidarity. Uh, in John 4, verse 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And Jesus says to her, I am he the one who is speaking to you. She's beginning to warm up to Jesus and she's sharing 
with him. I, I, I have this longing, this desire for a deliverer, for a liberator. I can't wait for that to happen. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm right here with you right now. You don't have to look to some other place. They had had a conversation about which mountain do you find God on? And Jesus is saying, God is right here with you right now. And what would it mean for our own spirituality if we could trust that, if we could hear that, if we could see God in solidarity with us, not just in the good times that we might experience, but especially in some of the most challenging times of our life. In John 9, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? This person who had been born blind and probably all his life had been longing for connection and community has this encounter with Jesus, and the net result of it seems to be that he is only further alienated, right? His parents have seemingly kind of said, "We're don't call us, we'll call you, son, uh, and the religious community, the leaders say, hey, we're, you are no longer welcome to be a part of our community. And it's in that moment that Jesus finds him. Jesus is strangely absent for most of John 9. He, he shows up to heal the man born blind and then is nowhere to be found. Everyone's like, where is Jesus? Who's this person that healed you? Where, you know, he can't be found. We don't know. Jesus was, I imagine Jesus was like taking some self-care time. It's wonderful. Uh, and... Then at the point of the deepest desperation of this man born blind, Jesus shows up and he is identifying with him. He is connecting to him. What does it look like for us to welcome exiles? What parts of ourselves feel exiled? Where do you feel resistance toward welcoming the marginalized or offering radical love to the marginalizers? What does reconnection look like for ourselves and for others? Um, this past week, um, uh, I saw Brandon Robertson, who is a gay Christian activist and writer and clergy person, um, posted that he felt some, it's like, I very rarely regret having uh, dialogue with people who are different and think differently and believe differently than me. He's like, but this week I did. And he posted uh, a video of him engaging with a conservative Christian leader in a podcast. And over and over and over again, uh, this person just essentially said, you're evil, you're an apostate. Like these were like, it's like, but I said, well, obviously you and I have different interpretations of, of scripture and God's understanding and the arc of things. It's like, well, no, the thing is like your scripture is self-centered around you, Brandon. It's all about you. Whereas I'm all about God. And it's kind of these very, uh, your character is corrupt. You're an apostate. You're evil. You're leading other people into sin. End of story. And so a conversation that Brandon thought he was getting into that was going to be a conversation, he quickly realized was basically just someone wanting to smash and trash his character. We see that in our passage, uh, the religious leaders say to the man born blind, we know this Jesus is a sinner and that you were born entirely in sins. And so there's just this even unwillingness to be in conversation with what God might be doing and instead, we can welcome through curiosity and humility. Jesus subverts the labels the religiously devout use to demean and exclude. Jesus is a friend of sinners, the Gospels tell us often, right? Sinners, I'm putting that in quotation marks. 
And he even says in Matthew, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Those people that the religious community labeled as evil, as corrupt. Jesus says, these are the very people who are finding belonging and connection and God's radical love enveloping them in my community. And the final thing I want us to look at is seeing as belonging. So in John 4, verse 40, when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. As I alluded to earlier, the word there for stay there is the same word in the Gospel of John that is to abide. That means to be connected, to remain with God. And another part in John's Gospel, Jesus will talk about God being the true vine and that we are the branches and we are to stay connected. We are to draw nourishment. We are to draw life from God. And that this is a prefiguring of this happening with the Samaritans. They're asking, will you abide with us, Jesus? Despite all the cultural differences that are here, could, could we find some way to draw nourishment and connectivity from you and from one another? And in John 9, verse 30, the man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where Jesus comes from, yet he opened my eyes. He's saying to these people who are about to cast them out, you don't even seem to understand what God is up to in the world, and yet this is the first time I have ever tasted belonging and love and connectivity is through him. If you don't understand that, then what do you understand is essentially the implication of uh, this verse from there. I want to finally talk then about how we botch belonging, which is Compassion as a rationale for harm. In John 9, uh, his parents said this because they were afraid. They chose to disconnect from their son. They kind of said, just ask him. We don't really know anything except for that he was born blind. We're not going to touch anything else uh, because of fear, which we know is often how uh, religion operates Uh, And religious leaders might claim to act out of the love of God and neighbor, but their actions create only fear. Much of their emotions wrestling with the violence and alienation their views heap on those who disagree. That there is this sense that I think, I know I felt it when I was in my days of proselytizing in a cold turkey way to people, uh, that... I was like, man, I I feel that I'm putting this violence out there in the world. And I want to say that I feel compassion. The reason I'm doing this is because I care about people. But I think I have to say that because otherwise it would be too hard to look at all of the pain I am putting out there in the world. Um, We welcome by illuminating oppression. The radical love of God draws close to liberate the marginalized and awaken the marginalizer to our common humanity. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. talks in his uh, sermon on the drum major instinct about a time he was imprisoned and he was talking to his white uh, imprisoners and essentially saying to them, like, tell me how much you make. So, oh, you should be marching with us next time because clearly the same people who are oppressing us are oppressing you. And they've somehow conned you into thinking that like the biggest thing that's threatening you is our racial or ethnic distinctions. But really the biggest thing that's oppressing us is this much larger system. You need to like let me out and we should join us for our next march. 
It shows this radical love of even trying to help illuminate to someone who was actively engaged in his own oppression to show them, can you see the way that you too are being oppressed? The way that your oppression and hatred not only dehumanizes me, but is also dehumanizing you as well. I want to close then with these words from David White from Self Portrait. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned, if you know despair or can see it in others. I want to know if you're prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you, if you can look back with firm eyes saying, this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into the fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of sure defeat. I have been told in that fierce embrace, even the gods speak of God.